two-week series tonight, as uh, you might have heard Randy pray, Faith, Finances, and Freedom. And uh, tonight we'll look at some of the foundational aspects of money and finances in the scriptures, and then in the next two weeks, uh, you know, we'll look uh, next week at uh, what does faith look like uh, in the scriptures as it relates to money, and then the, the final week, we'll look at um, what, is the, what are the freedoms that God wants us to have uh, related to money. So, so let's start, uh, we'll read three passages. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. I'm going to read one verse from that book, and then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Is that me? Am I doing all that scratchy stuff? Okay. Or it's just the sound system fighting against me. I don't know which it is. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 28. I like verse 30, but I'll read 28. Is that better? Maybe it is me. Is it me? What, what, am, what should I, before I teach, what, teach me real quickly, what, what should I do differently that I've never done before? Is it just too close? I can see I'll be editing the CD, um, be deleting a lot of Right, we're doing a lot. Really close to <laughs> trust another guy to do this. That's why I have an assistant pastor, folks. <laughs> it's good to laugh before you talk about money, anyway. You know, it's really, really good. Is it on? Yeah. Is it on? All right. Here, I'll give you this one. Thank you. All right. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. I'll be, Tuan, you can actually just kill the thing and restart over. Uh, it'll save me some editing. Um, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Read that one more time. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus with a paramount statement. You all know this verse, but it's good to be reminded of it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first the kingdom of God, in his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And we know there's a lot of things, and God knows them all. In the last place, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Not a verse that most of people think about. Uh, the, the first two verses, I think most people would, would agree are commonly thought of related to finances or uh, related to money. This verse, most people wouldn't see it in this light, but I, I think it really is appropriate 
uh, to look at it in this manner as well. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. We pray that uh, your spirit would speak. This is your word. This is your wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive and grow, and, and Lord, that these things would be helpful in each and every person's life here uh, as we want to be faithful stewards, loving stewards of all that you've given us. We thank you for all that you have already given us, Lord, and may we use it all for your glory and your honor and to reach men, women, boys, and girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. The first passage there in Proverbs, riches surely will fail. Nobody's taking anything with them when they die, right? Didn't matter if you were Howard Hughes or the Rockefellers or, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan or any of the people in the past or anyone in the present. You're not taking anything with you. They will fail. But God still said, at least for the believer, we could flourish. Now, exactly what flourish means, we'll, we'll look at that over the next couple of weeks, uh, God's perspective of what flourishing looks like. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 tells us if we really need a really basic outline of life, just seek first everything that he has ever taught us, and we're going to be in pretty good shape. Um, I am not Dave Ramsey. I am not the former, uh, now home with the Lord, Larry Burkett. I'm not here to be a financial advisor. Uh, what I am is a pastor and a minister of the gospel. And the scriptures have a lot to say about money and finances, as we'll look at not only tonight, but the next couple of weeks. So hopefully this will be beneficial for all of us. The last passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we know we're supposed to lay aside every sin. But did you notice the other word there? Weights. See, some of the things in our life are not always in and of themselves sin, but they can be weights. They can be habits that we just need to break. They can be uh, just kind of things that we learned along the way that uh, we thought were a good way of doing things, but they really weren't. We realize that we end up chasing our tail, a cat. But God wants us to lay aside anything that would hinder us from being able to serve him in the way that he's called us to do. And I want to say something else. I don't talk often about money from the pulpit. I really don't. Uh, I talk about it uh, typically only when it comes up in the text. As you know, for the, for the most part, we teach verse by verse the Bible. We've been in the book of Ezekiel. We're in the book of Luke. Uh, I do do topical messages. This Sunday I'm doing a topical message. Now you know. But, uh, but that's going to be from the Old Testament. So unless, uh, unless the Lord really lays it on my heart, but I think that we'll all agree that it's very important that we look at the things that we'll look at tonight, next week, and the week after. This is the first series I've ever done on money, and I started pastoring here January of 2007. But I feel the Lord wants to help all of us, uh, not just as believers, but uh, believers living in the United States. 
The Bible tells us that the love of money, the love of it, money is not the root of all evil, but the love of it is. True? So it says the love of money is the root of all evil. We see this in drug deals. We see this in organized crime. We see this in corporate, you know, just greediness. All of the things that are out there, it's the love of money that's the root of all types of evil. It's not the possession of money, but the wrong heart towards money. Everyone thinks of money to some extent or another, just like we think about food, we think about relationships, we think about work. They're things that occupy our mind, that come into our mind. None of these things, they're each a part of life, wouldn't you agree? Food, work, relationships, money, they're all a part of life. Uh, None of them are wrong in and of themselves. God ordained them. And when they're used in accordance with God's word and with the heart of God, these things can be good, all of them. The same is true of money. It comes down to the heart, comes down to the intent and how it is handled in our lives. But the fact is that money occupies the thoughts of people far too much. And for most people, including Christians, it's far more of an occupy of their mind than the peace of God occupying their mind. And the issues and handling of money run the gamut, don't they? Some are worried because they have severe financial needs, very real severe financial needs. Some can't remember a single time in their life when all of their financial needs, not once, but needs, were met. Some are great at growing money, but they have little to no concern about other people. Some people are extremely frugal with money. Maybe that's you. I don't know. Some are really frugal with money. Others are very careless with money. Some people aren't particularly frugal And they're not careless either. They're somewhere in the middle. I would say a lot of people would fall into that category. Some are constantly focused on how much money other people have. Some have plenty. In fact, we would all agree are wealthy, some very wealthy, and they're still completely unsatisfied. Charles Spurgeon said, ambition is insatiable. The gain of the whole world is not enough. And Jesus said, you could acquire the whole world and lose your own soul. What will a man give exchange? So all these different, you meet a lot of people and you'll meet a lot of different attitudes towards money. Very real fears, very real insecurities, lots of anxiety. Money casts a very large shadow on life. And Satan knows it. Satan knows that money casts a huge shadow on people's life. And as we get closer to the return of Christ, the shadow will actually get more pronounced. But as Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, he said, None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. That relates to understanding the end times, understanding what God wants us focused on, understanding how God wants us to use money, The wise would understand. The wicked won't know because they just follow systems that are given to them. But we're not of the world. We're of the Lord that bought us by his blood. God does not want us to be fooled. He does not want us to be led by our flesh. He does not want us to be led by fear when it comes to money. And if we didn't have the Holy Spirit and we didn't have the Word of God as a compass, we would have a lot of reasons to have anxiety. 
I want to say that again. If we didn't have, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit and we didn't have the Word of God, we would have a lot of reason to have anxiety. Let me give a snapshot of the larger financial picture around us in 2015. I'll start with a couple interesting factoids. These are not so important, but did you know that the majority of Americans won't bend down to pick up money unless it's at least a dollar? I will, by the way. So if you drop a quarter, now first I'll try and give it to you. But if you, I put them in a jar. I put all of my coins in a jar, and we see a certain amount. Uh, we actually get rid of it and use it for vacation. You'll love this one, speaking of coins. Remember this when you're picking up a coin. That metallic odor that's left on your hands, you know, isn't it great? Pick up a coin, you're like, why does it always smell like that? I'm going to tell you why right now. It's actually a type of human body odor. What happens is skin oils break down and decompose when they touch the iron that's in the metal. Uh, all of the coin have, uh, have a certain amount of iron in it. So the skin oils and the iron give you that unmistakable, oh-so-familiar smell of any time you've ever held a coin. And you really do not want to know the types of bacteria that are commonly found on dollar bills. Over 40% of a certain kind, so we'll just leave it at that. But wash your hands. Just do what the Old Testament says. Use running water. Antibacterial stuff. This has not been meant to be a hygiene night, but anyway. But money's pretty dirty. But not in and of itself. But we've got quite a snapshot around us. Speaking of dollar bills, using the Consumer Price Index from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the buying power of a $1 bill in 1913, and they started keeping track of this, today, to have the same buying power of a $1 bill in 1913, you would need $23.91. That's equivalent to a cumulative rate of inflation of 2,291.3%. Sorry, I love numbers. Just since 2002, the year after 9-11, we've seen a cumulative rate of inflation of 31.6%. Just since 2002, the year after 9-11, 31.6% inflation. If anyone tries to tell you there's no inflation, they're not being honest with you. And you will actually see that portrayed from time to time. This means that something that cost $100 in 2002 cost $139.59 today. So there's $100 in 2002. need about roughly $140 today to buy the same thing. If you've done any grocery shopping over the past few years, anyone done some grocery shopping lately? This is always fun now, isn't it? You've probably seen your basket get smaller and yet the bill hasn't seemed to change, or actually the bills have even gotten larger. Sometimes I'll ask people when I'm staying in the grocery line, I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, you think your grocery bill's getting bigger? All the responses I get. It's immediate with passion. Are you kidding? I, don't, I used to be able to fill the entire grocery cart. And I started asking that because a couple times I was in line and I actually saw people 
just feel they had to vent to the cashier of saying, I used to be able to buy so much more, so I started just doing my own anecdotal research. To add to the cumulative loss in buying power, we now have to buy, have to buy a lot of, a whole host of things that previous generations, our parents and grandparents, didn't need to buy, cable internet service, electronics, TV in multiple rooms, kitchen appliances, nearly everything, automate the yard, automate this, automate, and all of these things, and it all costs money, and more subscriptions. Almost everything that you get now, eventually you'll get an email say, you need to sign up. If you really want the best service, you've got to subscribe to this, no matter what it is. Then there's the skyrocketing cost of health care. An article uh, just uh, this week in the Times-Picune down in New Orleans states this, about 80% of American employees have health insurance plans with annual deductibles, up from 55% eight years ago, research shows. Generally, deductible amounts have more than doubled in the same period, just in the last eight years. Deductibles have more than doubled on average. CBS Money Watch back in November said whether you, can, whether you buy coverage on an exchange or from your employer's health plan, your health insurance premiums for 2015 and the next several years will be rising significantly. And the increases for 2015 are staggering, ranging from 20% to over 60%. Then there are those unexpected costs. You know, the ones that you didn't even plan. You got the bad news about the health insurance premiums, but you didn't even know about certain costs that were going up. According to americasaveweek.org, the typical American spent last year on unexpected expenditures was around $2,000 in unexpected things. Surprisingly, lower, house, uh, lower, pri- uh, lower income households cited pretty much the same amount. It was a, a pretty standard number across all economic demographics. Two-thirds of unexpected expenditures, health care, automobiles. Two-thirds, those two things that people just didn't, I didn't expect the alternator like I had last year not to stop, not to keep working. The average American spends $69 a day, even though we only have an average of $34 in our wallets. More people divorce us over financial issues than any other single cause. Well, at least, I got some good news, well, at least our government leaders are doing a good job managing the money that we send in taxes. Well, that's not even funny, is it? William R. Maddox, Jr. cites the fact that in 1950, the average family of four paid 2% of its earnings to federal taxes. 1950, 2%. Today, average is 24%. How's all that additional tax revenue being managed, you ask? Well, as you probably know by now, we have an astronomical amount of federal debt. We run an annual deficit which contributes to the debt, and according to the usdebtclock.org, we have $18.1 trillion in federal debt, but we've got others too. $1.2 trillion in state debt, $16 trillion in personal debt, the majority of that is mortgages, number two is student loans, and number three is credit card debt, and we have a whopping $115 trillion, yeah, you heard that number right, $115 trillion in unfunded liabilities for programs such as Social Security and Medicare. 
those of us that hope to receive some of those things someday. And by the way, the federal debt issue has been years in the making, though it's been accelerated quite significantly in the last 10 and even five years. It's that uh, the last time the debt actually went down in America, you could buy a 57 Chevy. 1957 was the last time the debt actually went down. So we've been accumulating the debt. And then the law of big numbers, if you understand the way the law of big numbers works, once a number gets big, it grows that much faster. And it's just like a snowball going down a hill. It really is just like a snowball going down a hill. As it picks up snow, it gets bigger, and it becomes impossible unless God were to help us stop. So I haven't even touched on many other important variables, such as who actually holds the U.S. debt, printing more money, the stock market fundamentals, the impact of oil prices, both when they go up and when they go down, geopolitical influences, terrorism, and that's just a few. Cyber attacks, cyber attacks on our banks, cyber attacks on company assets, all of these things, and really we could go on and on. So maybe you'd like to leave now and go home and go to bed. But all the financial figures and, and all the failures related, all those things, we'd all agree, those are all failures. They're mankind's failures. They're our collective failures. They're us as Americans' failures. They're us as Christians' failures. But all these collective failures only serve to prove that God's blessing is clearly not on the world's ways. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't that all tell us one thing, that God's blessings are not on the way we're currently doing it. But be encouraged. Daniel also said this of those following the Lord in the end times. Daniel 11.32. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now I know that that passage is specifically in the tribulation period, but it still applies in principle to all of us that are end times saints, we have the promise of God's help. So you don't have to go home and go to bed just yet. You can finish the rest of this with me. The issues of money, the lust of it, the control and the impact on people isn't new, is it? I do think, though, I do think the avalanche of new stuff coming at us in every media form you can think of the avalanche stuff coming to us in commercial advertising, catalogs. I mean, I get catalogs of furniture companies I've never heard of that arrive at the house. I'm like, wow, I do need a new desk after all. You know, when I see that thing, I'm like, I don't have that. The pop-ups on smartphones, and you can't, you can't even visit a website anymore because now you go to visit the website and the whole thing is covered by a frigid air or a, a Nike tennis shoe or something. I have to find the X that's so secretly hidden on there that I'm like, is the X in the shoe? Is it up in the corner? Where did they hide it this time? Because I can't seem to exit out. You've all experienced this, right? You're not leaving until they convince you you need it. The X is now so small, you need a microscope to, microscope to find it. 
So we've got an avalanche of stuff like never before. But the gravitational pull of money, the government's misuse of it, and the stress and the strife related to money are ancient issues that the Bible has been way out in front of. Did you hear me? The Bible's been way out in front of these things as far as the role of money in our lives. Let me say what tonight and the next two weeks are and aren't about as well. Number one, this Finances, Faith, and Freedom series is not in any way meant to depress you. But we do need to know what we're up against, right? You know, your baseline numbers in healthcare, they're not given to you to depress you, although sometimes they will depress us but they're meant to know what we're up against. Uh, Both what we're up against in our own flesh and what we're up against in the world around us. Because remember, we've got both to deal with. We take us everywhere, and then we have the outside world to deal with. Number two, it's not meant to cause fear, so you start saving every single possible penny and start storing up like crazy. By the way, some amount of preparation for anything is good. I lived through Hurricane Andrew when I was down in Miami, and we really did not have anything for uh, over a week. And if we didn't have family that was in Florida that got stuff to us, we would have gone over two weeks. There was nothing left in the grocery stores. Everything was gone. I mean, uh, and I even worked for uh, Metro Dade County at the time. Ended up, uh, once I got back into the office, I had a, I had a business car, and I was able to take pictures and stuff, but... but it didn't matter. Nobody could get their hands on anything. So some amount of preparation, by the way, is a good thing. It's just why, especially if you have family and kids and you want to be a blessing to people uh, when you have that opportunity. But this is not meant to cause fear that you start saving every single penny you can. Number three, it's not meant to explain to you how if you follow a Biblical formula, God is going to make you rich. There's a lot of TV evangelists and stuff that you can go watch if you want to hear that line of thinking. It's not scriptural, and they, matter of fact, they're robbing the people that can least afford to give that kind of money usually, uh, because most people that know how to make money, the last thing they're doing is sitting there watching some guy on TV saying, so you need to sow here, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you're going to be rich, and you're going to have all kinds of great stuff. This isn't that. God's not promised anybody riches. We saw that in Proverbs. Number four, this series is not meant to make you feel guilty because you don't give enough. It's not meant to make you feel guilty because you're not giving enough We will look at biblical stewardship, particularly next week, uh, from the position of God's love and grace. We'll look at biblical stewardship. God has a very loving and gracious plan. It's not meant to make people feel guilty because they're not giving enough. Number five, this series will be practical and applicable, but it will not be a financial planning workshop, although there's, there's good place for those. I mean, I do think... There's a good place for financial workshops, and, and maybe this is a good springboard uh, 
for some folks here that would want to go uh, to that next step and, and, and look at things to get more granular in uh, you know, really being a good, faithful steward of what God's given us. But as we go through this series, we can have peace and assurance that God is far from silent on money. He's not silent on money. Quite the opposite. You see, he's not silent on money because he knows the past. He knows our present conditions. And he knows how to guard us as we go through the future. Personally, your families, and collectively as a church, Calvary Chapel, Richmond family. And then even beyond that, the body of Christ family. But here's the key. We have to listen. He has a lot to say. It's not overly complex. God's advice is always practical, applicable, helpful, but we have to listen, and we have to be willing to hear what he has to say and adjust accordingly. Pastor John MacArthur made these comments and observations regarding money in the Word of God. He said this, he said, 16 of the 38 parables of Jesus deal with money. 16 of the 38. One of every 10 verses of the New Testament deals with that subject. Scripture offers about 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money. Now, someone hearing that for the first time, or hearing it out of context, might ask, uh, why is money mentioned so much in the Scriptures? Is God fixated on money? No, not at all. But he knows people are. And without God's help, people are typically, typically either worried about money, wasting money, or worshiping money. Did you hear those three? Typically, without God's help, people are either worried about money, wasting money, or worshiping money. Whether they realize it or not. And many people don't realize it. They just have lived a certain way so long, they don't know any different. Before I came to Christ, I fluctuated between all three. I got saved. I got married at 25, saved at 26. I was on the like eight-year, nine-year plan to finish college, changed majors like five times. I was, a, I was just a mess before I came to Christ. Just, you know, just ne- never settled. And, and before we came to Christ, me and my wife, we had accumulated a good deal of debt, quite a big chunk of debt. Praise the Lord, we ended up paying all of it off. Like most of you, we still have a mortgage, but we have no car payments and, you know, things like that. God just, over time, you know, those things change. But I, you know, before I got saved, we made so many decisions in the flesh. We didn't know what God said. We didn't follow what God said. We didn't really care what God said because we were lost and we were just doing our own thing. But later, we were discipled. And Jesus wants to disciple all of us, not just in all the other areas of Christian discipline, but also financial discipline as well. Another common question for those that are unsaved or they've not yet been taught what the Bible actually says. There are people that are out there say, I heard the Bible says, you know, there are also some of the same folks that say, didn't God say that verse? God helps those who help themselves. No, that's not in the scriptures. 
That might be on a day spring card somewhere, but it's not in the scriptures. But what the Bible actually says, if they don't know these things, they might ask a question like this. Does God need people's money? Is God broke? Does God need everyone's money? The answer is, of course not. It all belongs to him anyway, first. First, it all belongs to God. Ask J.P. Morgan. You know, as soon as he slipped into eternity, he realized none of it belonged to him either. Two, the emphasis on money in scriptures is to bring people to a place of peace and rest that only God can provide. People are fixated on money, not God. God's trying to bring people to a place of peace and rest that he can provide. Money can't provide it anyway. He's trying to say it 2,000 different ways in the scriptures. It's interesting that although Jesus spoke often of money, and he used money for parables and illustrations, we see him do some of the following. We see him heal people. We see him comfort people. We see him cast out demons. We see him even raise people from the dead. But you know what we never see? We never see Jesus provide wealth or some kind of heavenly lotto to someone. Isn't that interesting? He's healing people, raising people from the dead, comforting people, doing all these things, casting out demons, and we never say, Jesus, hear Jesus, who owns the world, say, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm stroking you a check for a mill. Because I can do it. Because I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and so what I'm going to do for you is I'm giving you a whole boatload of cash. Mm-mm. We do see him tell a man to get rid of all of his money, interestingly enough. Now, that's not what Jesus says to every single person. He was testing that heart. We understand that. But he does all these things, but he never, ever is doing like, you know, Santa with a big bag of cash or something, handing, even though he could have. Why? Well, Jesus looks to the far deeper need. And when people have the right heart toward God, the right perspective towards money, they'll be focused on God, and they'll be confident that God really will meet their needs. They'll be confident in that. They'll stand in it. They'll rest in it. What exactly is money? Webster's defines it as something generally accepted as a medium of exchange, a measure of value, a means of payment. As officially coined or stamped metal currency, money of amount, or paper money. It's wealth reckoned in terms of money or currency. Finances are, are um, definition for finances under Webster's as well, is money other than liquid assets of a government, a business, a group, or an individual. So finances are money of different entities, individuals, or organizations. But I like this definition. It's a tangible measure of time, effort, or recognized value. It's a, tangible, it's a tangible measure of time, effort, or recognized value. In the scriptures, we know this is the case. In the scriptures, the denarius was valued as a day's wages, a full day's wages. So you get that one coin that it measured a day's wages. Now, gold has value, for example, 
even if you were hiking through the woods and you accidentally kicked a rock, and underneath the rock was a piece of gold, that would be a nice find, wouldn't it? Just hiking in the woods, you didn't do all that stuff like those guys in Alaska that show bulldozing all that stuff. You just happened to find it right there. You didn't work for it, but it immediately has value, doesn't it? God just placed the value right there on the earth. So some things do have value without any effort. An inheritance, for example, has quite a bit of value even if you never worked for it. All you did was, thank you for being born in this family. Here. But it's value. It's recognized value. Someone else's, though, for inheritance, someone else's time and effort brought that money to bear. I want to take a look at some scriptural attitudes in our last few minutes in our first session tonight. I want to take a look at some scriptural attitudes that we need to have regarding money. I don't have an outline, but you might want to write some of these down. Um, I have, a, as you have noticed, I have a certain listing of things tonight. But we'll look at it, just this attitude that the believer needs to have, because tonight is about the foundational aspect of, so we'll build off tonight to next week, and then in our final uh, Wednesday together. Tonight, just the foundation of the scriptures. And so these attitudes that we want to have as believers. First off, money in the hands of a believer, one of us saved by grace, should be the following. Money in our hands should should exhibit the following. Number one, money in the hands of a believer should always be a blessing from God. Money in the hands of a believer should always be a blessing from God. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that it comes into our hands in an honest, God-given fashion. Because someone who stole money, it wasn't a blessing from God. Correct? But if it's a blessing from every good and perfect gift cometh from above, money that, if we receive any money, we want it to be a blessing. It should be a blessing from God. It should come honestly it should come through a way that God deems is honorable. And, and there are, you know, th- those of you that have kids, it's not wrong to receive. The Bible talks a lot about inheritance, doesn't it? Interestingly enough. When we get into the next couple of weeks, I think as parents, we should, we should have a desire to pass something on to our kids. I really believe that. I believe it's a scriptural principle. We'll take a look at it. I don't believe in, you know, you know, Spend, I'm spending every dime on the golf course. You can get nothing. There's people living that way today. It's not, it's not a biblical philosophy. It's really not. But the, there's a lot of different honest ways. The number one is hard work. We understand that. The Bible also makes clear don't overwork to be rich. And have that as a focus. But always be a blessing, number one. A blessing from God. Number two, money in the hands of a believer should primarily, I didn't say exclusively, it's important, primarily be a tool. Primarily be a tool. Useful in meeting specific and important needs. Not exclusively. And here's why. Because some Christians, we can be really judgmental towards other Christians at times. We need to be careful of that. Some Christians will be like, I cannot believe they bought a motorcycle. I mean, God would never buy a motorcycle. Meanwhile, they're standing there with a, a triple latte in their hands. And I would, I, would, 
I would agree that a motorcycle costs a lot more than a triple latte, but which one was a need? Neither. You could survive the rest of your life never having another triple latte. You really could. I know that seems hard to believe. Starbucks doesn't want you to believe it, but you really could. You and I could survive the whole rest of our life without another triple latte. We could also survive the rest of our life without the dream Harley, which I don't have that dream for those of you that do, but anyway. But neither are needs, correct? And God will sometimes allow people to have a want, but he's not going to let us go overboard on these things. And we'll look at these things. So money in the hands of the believer primarily, I didn't say exclusively, primarily is a tool. Primarily is a tool. But God does have some grace for us to have things that aren't always a need. They're not always a tool. And we know that's true because when we have a piece of pie, we didn't need it, but we sure enjoyed it, didn't we? Right? Primarily a tool. And so God wants us to orient our thinking about, as we're stewards of his money, we're always thinking about, Lord, thank you for the, for the blessings and the, and the things that weren't really needs, but I'm thinking that this that you've given me is a tool for a greater good of the kingdom of God. Number three, money in the hands of a believer should always be held wisely and not emotionally driven. Wisely and not emotionally driven. If you can't handle the Brookstone calendar, don't look at it. Right? I've never seen this gadget before. Of course you didn't. They invent another one every day, I think. Held wisely, not emotionally driven. Number four, money in the hands of a believer should always be held lightly. Should always be held lightly. It really can be lost or taken away. There really could be another stock market crash like there was in the Great Depression. Money really, as Proverbs says, can take flight and just fly away. So you hold on to it lightly. Job is an archetype for all of us to never forget, correct? Job had, I mean, Job was more prepared financially than probably anyone you could think of, and God said, all right, go ahead, take it all. So hold it lightly, because it really could be gone someday. Number five, money in the hands of a believer should be held with the acknowledgement that it all actually belongs to God. We can forget this. Easily we forget it. We actually think that the things we own, we own. God says, you don't own them. You're renting them, in a sense. But worse, less than, not as much renting them as much as we are kind of watching over them, managing them for God's glory. But, again, that we hold it with the acknowledgement that it all belongs to God. Now I want to take a look at a, sh- a short list of things money can never bring. If you'd like to take notes, again, here's seven things money can never bring. These are all foundational from the scriptures. We start now tonight. This is the lay in the brick foundation. We'll start putting up the walls next, next week and the week after. Short list of things money can never bring. Number one, salvation. First and foremost, nobody can buy eternal life. Sorry, Bill Gates. Sorry, Slim down in Mexico. Sorry, Warren Buffett. Nobody. Can buy. Not only can no one buy salvation, you can't even buy a minute of it or even a second of it. 
We know that. They will tell him, I already knew that. Well, we have to start with a true list. So the first one, they can't buy salvation. This is not an exhaustive list. These are the lists that I personally, as I was studying, felt like these are the ones that are most important for us to kind of remember. I'm not into people remembering 50 things, because I don't think we will. But we can remember a short list. Number one, salvation. Number two, also start with this, security. Money can't buy security. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gave us richly all things to enjoy. Paul writes to Timothy. Now, Paul, who was not rich, who actually had a really good high-paying job before he went and to be a full-time evangelist, Paul gave up position, authority, and income that he had before to serve the Lord. And Paul's like, I'm not impressed by your money, don't care about your money, but you guys better not trust in your money. And so he says to Timothy, who's also a pastor, he said, let them know not to trust in that stuff because if they trust in it, God may very well take it out from under them. Not to be haughty about it. Remember Jesus coming to Revelation, in Revelation 3 to Laodicea, they got the same way. They were really, really fixated on their money. And they were secure in what they thought was keeping them secure, at least, but it was an illusion. You can't really buy security. I've told you guys before, I, um, some of you don't, I didn't hear this, but uh, um, I know of, um, uh, I was talking to a lady, and she had gone on a trip with a bunch of other ladies that all were married to men that were, right here in Richmond, that were doing really, really well financially, all of them, about 10 women, and they went and did this, you know, beach trip thing, and uh, I, I want to say it was 10, but it, it was somewhere eight, eight to ten ladies. And all but one was taking anxiety medication. All but one. And you're thinking, you guys have macked out houses, vehicles, 401Ks. Everything's taken care of. What, what's left? And you still are anxious constantly because money can't buy security. Number three, happiness. Goes with the can't buy happiness. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you desires of your heart. Some of the happiest people you'll ever meet on planet Earth are Christians in other parts of the world that don't have near as much as us. And their smile is from ear to ear, and it's genuine. Happiness is delighting in the Lord. Number four. Money can never bring a free pass from consequences. Yes, in the world you can buy your way out of things, but your conscience will still be there, and the guilt will still be there. Proverbs, and worse than that, uh, if we stay in that place, someday we would meet God in that condition. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So money can never buy a free pass from consequences. Number five, Money can never buy peace of mind. Can't buy peace of mind. Isaiah 26.3. Do you want peace of mind? I know I do. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So money can't buy peace, but God can give us peace. Perfect peace. I'm still learning after I'll be saved 20 years in June. And I'm still learning how to walk in perfect peace. I, I have not gotten there yet. How about you? 
I definitely, there's days where I'm like, did I forget everything I learned in the last, you know? And then I have to go back to the fundamentals of the faith, and I go back and I find perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon you. Number six, we all know this one, money can't buy health. You say, well, there's a shocker. Why are we spending so much on it then? I have no idea, because it doesn't seem to be working. I didn't even pull up all the health stats. I could have, I could have really gone down the list and say how, how, how less healthy America is 20 years from early 90s. It's really, really bizarre, some of the things that are taking place. And, and the nation is becoming less and less healthy. I believe it goes back to read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Read the whole chapter. Blessings and cursings. We're under these things. But you and I, as believers, can actually be like children of Israel in the land of Goshen. God can give us a special protection. Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, that's our number one need, and heals all your diseases. God does not need the help. Um, Our dishwasher got sick recently. Um, It just stopped working. And I was like, I called the guy twice last year, and he came out and he fixed the motor, and then he fixed something else. And so uh, we decided, all right, this is good for this family to learn how to hand wash like I did when I was a kid. So we did. And all of a sudden, it started working like two weeks later. As it's, it's worked perfect. I have no idea. It got the flu for a couple of weeks. It's now working again. But God can heal anything. Number seven, money can never bring us love. You can't buy it. I know there's a song. We're not going to do that. <laughs> Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. Isn't that great? That God will love us. Now, Jesus, like I said, Jesus didn't stroke the check, but he said, I love you. I love you till the ends of the earth and all the way into heaven. I'll even build a mansion for you there, I will love you, and other people will lie to you, and lust, and things that are substitutes for love, but God says he will love, and money can't get any of these things, salvation, security, happiness, past consequences, peace of mind, health, or love, you can't buy any of those things with money. Last thing, as believers, where do we want to grow? Five things. Five areas we want to grow as believers. There's more than five, but again, these are the five we'll focus on. Five areas we want to grow. Number one, we want to grow in contentment and faith in God as our provider. We need to grow in contentment and in faith. All of us could be more content than we currently are. I'm pretty sure of it. All of us could have more faith in God than we currently have. How do I know that? Because we're still alive. We get to heaven, those things will all be perfected. Until then, we can actually become more content than we are. Then you have to ask yourself a question. Am I more content today than I was at other places in my life? Or did I used to be more content than I am now? If you used to be more content than you are now, God's knocking. And that's it's for all of us. Was there a time in my life when I was more content? Yeah, when I was seven. Well, you weren't even saved then. God wants to take it. That childlike condition is a good thing in a sense. We have to come childlike faith to even get saved. 
God wants us to go back to a place if we were more content at some other time, it's time to go back there and grow beyond it. So number one, we want to grow in contentment and faith in God as our provider. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your conduct be done without covetousness. Be content with such things you have. For the Lord himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we have to believe that. that God's going to never leave us or forsake us. And just to be content with such things we have. Elizabeth Elliot said all her life, she said, anything you don't have right now, God knows you don't need. I know that's hard for us to understand sometimes. We think, well, I'm sh- I know I need this. Nope. He knows better. Number two, we want to grow in our handling and managing of money. We want to grow in our handling and managing of money. Everybody can grow in this, even Donald Trump. I'm kidding. You ever notice he doesn't think he can grow in anything? He's got the biggest, best, everything. Interesting. He's a funny guy, isn't he? We want to grow in our handling and managing of money. Hudson Taylor said, small things are small things, but faithfulness with a small thing is a big thing. Small things are small things, but faithfulness with a small thing is a big thing. God doesn't look down and say, you, compared to a hundred other believers, are some of the worst I've ever seen at managing money. He just looks at us individually and says, from where you're at, I want you to go forward to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. Grow. All of us can grow in handling and managing of money. Number three, we want to grow in giving for the sake of the gospel. We want to grow in giving for the sake of the gospel. Why do we give to the local church? Why do we give to missionaries? Why do we give to evangelists? Why do we give to uh, people that are you know, really doing the most uh, life-threatening work around the world, Voice of the Martyrs, GFA, things like that? Why do we give to these things? It's for the sake of the gospel. But we want to grow in giving, and we want to have this heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. We do it cheerfully because it's coming from a heart that same Jesus has, the same heart Jesus has for people that he doesn't want to see them in hell. And so we give for the sake of the gospel. Number three, we want to grow in that. Number four, we want to grow in saving. Now, some people would say, well, we shouldn't save at all if it's the end or something. Well, first of all, we don't really know. Um, I do think we're in the last days. Uh, but I look at something like Genesis 15 and the generations that God speaks to Moses about. And from the time Israel became a nation, that could be 1948 to 2048, if you take a 100-year generation. Um, and we don't know any, uh, we have no idea uh, exactly when you know, the end things will come. But we, uh, we do want to have some Again, we want to be generous givers. We'll get that. Um, that's my fifth one anyway. Uh, we, want to, we want to grow in giving to the gospel. But also, some saving makes sense for a lot of things. And really, a lot of it will relate to family. It will relate to the ministry. In Matthew chapter 25, 27, Jesus was speaking specifically at investing in the kingdom of God when he said, so you ought to have deposited my money with bankers and at my coming, I would have received back interest. Now, Jesus was mostly talking about, I deposited salvation in you. This is the primary. The the essence of that teaching was, I deposited salvation in you, and you never multiplied it. You never made any disciples. You never went out and shared the gospel. You never went out. And so 
he's calling the debt load there and say, off you go, because you did not do any of the things. But principally, if you look at Proverbs and you look at other places in Scripture, the same principle is that we would actually learn to not spend more than we bring in, but actually save more than we're bringing in and learn to be savers. And then when someone has a real need, a genuine need, we aren't all saying to each other, I'd love to help, but we don't have a penny to spare. The same problem with our calendars. I would love to help you, but I don't have a minute to spare. That was the same. Remember the Samaritan laying on the road? Everyone walked by? I'd love to help, but I don't have time. I'd love to help you and even bind your wounds and even get you to hospital, but we don't have a penny to spare. We're maxed out. So God wants us to grow beyond that, that we actually would be able to save. And again, remember, this isn't to make you feel guilty. If you say, well, we're not there at that moment. It's okay. God loves you right now and wants to move us all past. This is an opportunity for all the body of Christ to grow at the same time. And then the fifth one, we want to grow in generosity. We want to have generous hearts just like God has towards us. He loved us while we were still sinners. Proverbs 22, 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed. The Bible talks about not being a miser. This is all mine. Don't even look at it. Kids have this immediately. This is my Oreo. And you're actually making the whole bag. You can have a crumb if there's any left. God wants us to have generosity. So as we close uh, our first session together in this three-week series, I want to remind you, our attitudes towards money, and really everything in the Christian walk, our attitudes never remain static. Our attitudes go like this. True? That's why you need daily devotions, daily prayer, daily worship, because your attitudes go like this, and you forget what you learned last month. That's why in our Friday night Bible studies, we'll review some of the things both from a Wednesday night and some of the things from Sunday because we forget rather quickly. Our attitudes don't remain static. I know many Christians, and the other thing, we want to grow. I know many Christians that are way better at money management than I am. I'm better than some, but I know many that are far better and, and wiser and have done it longer. I know some that have the most generous hearts, and I'm like, wow, I want to have that kind of generosity. I know I have some that have just the most blind, incredible giving faith, and I'm like, wow, I truly want that. And it's okay to, when you see godly principles in a person's life, it's okay to say, Lord, I aspire to that. Paul said, follow my example. So, we all have areas to grow in these things. And this isn't to beat ourselves up about it. I was just reading, I think John Bunyan said, uh, he realized that Satan, one of the things Satan was doing with him is getting him to constantly think about his sins and flaws, which, are, which is just about, which is almost as bad as not recognizing we have sins and flaws. Do you see the balance? On the one hand, you have people that don't think they have any sin or any flaws. They're fun to be around, aren't they? They don't think they have any flaws or any sins. Then you have people that constantly focus on their sins and flaws, and they can't get anything done. And so God's like, I'm going to show you where you're at and help you grow beyond those things.